I had a chance to scoot down the hall and grab a cup of coffee during the break because, well, we saw this headline the other day, Andrew and I, as we were planning the show, this one from Portugal, and it says people who drink three to five cups of coffee a day, a day, are more alert and have better memory. And as soon as we saw the headline, Andrew and I immediately agreed we should get Thomas Merritt back to talk about this. Professor Thomas Merritt from the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, one of Canada's preeminent coffee experts and uh, one of our favorite guests. Professor Merritt, Thomas, good morning and welcome back, sir. Morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's great to have you with us, Thomas. Now, you and I uh, have had coffee conversations in the past. You're a decaf guy. You drink a decaf again this morning, probably, too, aren't you? So, you know what? I, I, I do decaf in the afternoons, uh, but I but I am fully leaded, caffeinated in the morning. <laughs> well, that's great. And now, you and I have also discussed in the past, Thomas, the fact that coffee over time, and let's say the last 20 years, have enjoy has enjoyed real hills and valleys of popularity, even from the scientific community, Some because it's gone through fits and starts of being not really very good for you, you know, to, well, it, and, and now we've got this study, three to five cups of coffee a day, you're more alert, you have better memory. So clearly, coffee is at a higher point in terms of of global popularity now than perhaps it has been in a good long time. Yeah, maybe so. I think that's interesting. And, and, and I love the fact you sent me this article to, to take a look at. Um, it, it, it's an interesting article on, on many different levels. So I, I actually have the original paper up here in front of me on my computer. So I, I have finished my cup of coffee and I am stretched out. Uh, I've got a bunch of things open on the computer. And so I'm looking at the sort of press release pop side piece that, that you sent me. Right, and, I'm right. and, at and that gave problem. you a link to the paper that was published uh, just a few days ago. That's right. And so I'm, I'm looking at them side by side, and they are an interesting um, example of the difference between what is actually done and what makes it into the media. So mm -hmm. it, and there, there's, there's nothing that's not correct, but if, but if you read that headline, people who drink three to five cups of coffee a day are more alert, have better memory, Right. you would probably think that that paper was about alertness and memory, would you not? Mm, it, it was certainly, headline writers want you to think like that, yes. And it has nothing to do with alertness or memory. So it, it's it, basically what the authors have done is they've looked at where in your brain does do you see a response to drinking coffee. And mm -hmm. the, the paper is, is fascinating. And so I'm looking at it and it's got all these images of brains and bright different colors, and it's super cool. Um, and what they've done is they've said, okay, because we know that coffee makes you more alert, and because mm -hmm. we know that coffee improves your memory, can we look to see where does your brain respond to that coffee? So one of the things that you and I talked about in our, the first chat was how does our body respond to coffee and, and why do you respond to coffee? And if you sort of dig back through your memory, which may be enhanced by that cup of coffee, there are a set of, of receptors that normally respond to, to a chemical in your brain called a neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. And caffeine goes in and it sort of hijacks those receptors and it makes you a little bit more alert. So what the authors of the paper were doing was saying, okay, well, given that, can we actually see differences in brain activity that would reflect this alertness or this memory? Um, and they do. And it, it's super cool. They find that your brain is more dynamic when you drink coffee. So it's more active. Uh, it's active in different ways. And they compared coffee drinkers with, understandably, non-coffee drinkers. 
and they see these differences. And then they give the coffee drinkers a cup of coffee, and now their brain looks like a coffee drinker brain. Interesting. So, and they were the the they were able to the the all of these uh, uh, measurable, observable uh, differences were uh, were uh, made available to the scientists and the researchers in this project, Thomas, because they were using MRI scans. Talk about <laughs> up to the minute, uh, the most po- the best possible equipment to study uh, this this phenomenon. So they so they what they did, as I understand it, they they because you said they gave they gave people a cup of coffee to drink and then they were able to scan their brains after they drank a cup of coffee. So they would be able to get like almost immediate instant reaction. And it was all yeah. about connectivity, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And that's a really great way to put it. So they are using MRI. Um, so funny story about MRI. Uh, it's based on using radio waves and the natural sort of electronic uh, nuclear flu- fluctuation in molecules. And it, it's actually called nuclear magnetic resonance. But when they moved to using this in a medical way, nobody wanted to put their head in a machine that was called nuclear magnetic nuclear. resonance. Yeah, right, right. So they, they renamed it MRI. Ah. And they just took the nuclear part out, and suddenly people were like, yeah, I'll totally put my head in that. I'm completely sure. fine with that. Um, but it's just, it's just a naming game to make people more comfortable. But you're entirely correct. It works in real time. And so you, you put have somebody sit in this machine or probably lie in this machine – the first thing they did was actually compare the, the brain activity using this MRI in coffee drinkers and non-coffee drinkers. And so they, mm-hmm. they weren't, they didn't have an acute, they didn't have a cup of coffee in hand. And so this was just the resting state between the two. Sure. And really interestingly, they found differences in connectivity between those two groups. So if you were a, uh, a consistent coffee drinker, if you normally had three to five cups of coffee a day, your brain looks a little bit different. The activity in your brain looks a little bit different than if you don't have a cup of coffee. Uh-huh. And then the next experiment was to take those non-coffee drinkers and give them a cup of coffee and say, okay, well, now does the brain activity look like a non-coffee drinker? And it doesn't. So a non-coffee drinker with a cup of coffee in their hand, now the brain activity looks like a coffee drinker. So this this whole business of coffee facilitating connectivity in the brain, uh, and they say that uh, it, it could be for people who drink up to three to five cups of coffee a day. Yeah. Is this something that that ha- happens over time? That if you are a a, a, cons- a, a chronic consumer of coffee, yeah. large number, large quantities on a daily basis, you're going to end up with a sharper brain or a better connected brain than someone who doesn't. Yeah, so there are a couple of things in there. One of the things that's, that I really, I, I had to read the paper a few times, and I had to go back and, and, and look through the literature to try to figure this out. The, the, the connectivity thing is, is actually is, is bad, and, and bad is a, not the right term, but what you want is a less connected brain, and it, oh. it's really counterintuitive. But what the, the way that I understand it is a... A less connected is a more dynamic brain, and so hmm. what they're what they're looking for is evidence that there are sort of less entrenched patterns, and that the patterns are more dynamic. And hmm, so, I think okay. a, a way to look at it is not is it more or less connected, but is it more or less dynamic? And what they're arguing is that coffee drinkers have a more dynamic brain, and and they, they actually so I mean I was listing this off. They their evidence 
suggests that the coffee drinkers have a more efficient brain. They have more dynamic brains, that they're right. better at information processing, um, that there's better me- memory retention. Honestly, I sort of struggle with this. It, it's The paper is really sort of pitching that coffee is this brain magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, obviously, that's not how they're going to phrase it. Um, but anytime you see something where a non-natural state is, is so much better than a natural state, you sort of need to take a step back and say, all right, well, what's the context of these results? Um, but, you know, you look at the imaging and, and you look at the data, and they are consistently finding differences between coffee drinkers and non-coffee drinkers. Whether all of them are as, as positive as it's sort of pitched in the paper, I think we could take that with a grain of salt. Talking coffee here with our good friend, uh, Professor Thomas Merritt from Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. Uh, over in Europe, there's been a new study uh, that showed that people, that uh, scientists are saying people who uh, regularly drink coffee, uh, uh, well, they've discovered differences in the makeup of their brains compared to people who don't drink any coffee at all. Uh, they say coffee drinkers had a more efficient brain. And we're talking to Professor Merritt about the 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 back story behind this this study uh, which suggests thomas that uh, people who don't drink coffee are at some kind of disadvantage and you know i i mentioned earlier three billion cups of coffee per day get consumed on this planet but it and and, and given those numbers it's kind of hard to believe that that there are people who don't drink coffee but there are and you and i both know that are they at least according to this study at some kind of disadvantage yeah, I don't think so. And that's, you know, we, we started this with, you know, take the, the results with a, with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, I, it, it's, it's hard to sort of piece that together. I mean, one of the things that, that's interesting about this study is that they're actually, they're, they're experimentally testing, right? They've got a group of people that drink coffee. They've got a group of people who don't. And they're, they're looking at how the brains are active in those two groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're finding differences. And, you know, as you say, there, there are a lot of people who drink coffee. So, you know, where, where does that end up taking us? Um, one of the things that's sort of striking is they've got about 50 people, maybe 55 people in the study. So they've got about 30 people that are drinking coffee and a little bit over 20 people, 24 people that are, that are not coffee drinkers. And on the one hand, they're like, okay, well, that's, that's 55 people. And on the other hand, well, that's only 55 people. That's right, yeah. And, and so the sample's not enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, when we run studies in my lab, we, we work with, with fruit flies, and the numbers that we work with are in the thousands. So we're going to look at the, the biochemistry of this thousand flies to compare to that thousand flies. Mm-hmm. And you end up sort of having a little bit more confidence in, in the results. So are there differences in brain activity between coffee drinkers and non-coffee drinkers? Absolutely. Can we tie those into things that we know about memory um, and efficiency of, of uh, brain activity, we absolutely can. Does that mean that, that non-coffee drinkers are at a disadvantage? I have a hard time with that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, so. I really struggle making that conclusion. Yeah. Uh, okay. So basically, uh, we we take a look at this study and the headline. Of course, that's what grabbed uh, Andrew and my attention immediately. And in large bl- block font, people who drink three to five cups of coffee a day are more alert, have better memory. Well, that's just a headline. It's impossible to ignore. Uh, and so yeah. you dive you dive into it, and then you realize that it, this study is done uh, with a very limited group of people. But would you say, as uh, before, we wrap this thing up because I didn't want to talk to you about your school. Uh, would you say that this represents a positive finding in terms of the amount of information we're accumulating about coffee going forward. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you one of the most interesting things about this paper is that they can tie it, they can tie their results to a lot of the other things that we're really comfortable with. So we do know that coffee makes you more alert. What we don't know is why. And so you and I have talked about this with that little magic receptor that, that is binding to, or the caffeine is binding to. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they're able to show in this paper is that the regions of the brain that are more active in coffee drinkers also have, are the regions that we expect to find these receptors. And so they're sort of tying pieces together and, and the puzzle of, of coffee biology is a little bit more complete because of this study. And it's oh, more okay. complete in a really, 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 really interesting way. I mean, this kind of data is, is hard to get. Um, they, the machines are incredibly expensive. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm talking about the, the limited number of people at 55. Getting 55 people in an experimental study is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have done a great job with this. So it's a really interesting paper that adds a little, another couple of pieces to the puzzle of why does coffee make us behave the way that it does. Interesting stuff, Tom. So I appreciate your your dissecting it for us and breaking it all down. I need to take a couple of minutes, though, on this Sunday morning to talk to you about what's going on back at Laurentian University uh, at uh, on Sudbury, Ontario. Because again, we're a little away from from the campus here, Thomas. Uh, as we as we understand, again, the headlines here in British Columbia, uh, Laurentian University uh, is essentially bankrupt to the point where they've had to lay off both staff and faculty and over a hundred in each category. Give us the background yeah. story here. Yeah, it, it, it is a really dark time for the university. Um, it is a really complicated story. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere last fall, the administration realized that the, the financial difficulties that we knew were going on were deeper than had been appreciated. And so as of Early this year, they, uh, they declared financial insolvency. So it's a step away from bankruptcy. Mm-hmm, and they, mm-hmm. they have entered a process called CCAC um, that has never been used by a public institution before and in the process of restructuring the university around that. And the idea is to size the university to uh, a staff and faculty and administration level that we can actually pay, we can afford, given the income that the, that the university has. Right. Uh, it is a really, really, really brutal process. Um, it is based on tuition dollars in, in all different categories. Um, it's all done behind closed doors. We, we're not privy to uh, what leads to the decisions. And so as of two weeks ago, or two weeks ago, I think tomorrow, um, the, the cuts were announced. Mm-hmm. So we lost 110 faculty members. We lost out of, and out of a faculty of about 400. So we lost about a quarter of the university, right? Uh, yeah. And a similar percentage of, of staff and, and the administration. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know any of my colleagues, um, either in staff or in faculty, who saw this coming. And I think most of the administration didn't see it coming either. The so- the impact on the universities has been massive. Sure. Uh, was there any particular area of uh, of faculty that saw a greater decline in numbers? In other words, did they eliminate whole departments, or were there just some individuals from a variety of different departments? Yeah, and so the the way that universities are set up, um, you can't just take out individuals. So you can declare programs or departments redundant essentially mm-hmm. um and and close a program 
So, for example, you couldn't go into my department and say, okay, we're going to cut 25% of your department. Um, but we could go into a department and say, you, you don't have sufficient student enrollment to justify the number of faculty. Right. And so entire schools and entire, entire departments uh, were eliminated. And it, that, that's the, legally the only way that you can actually address this. So Got it. Laurentian, we sort of define ourselves on a number of things. And, and part of that is what we call our tricultural mandate. Um, they, we have a lot of programming in English, but we also have substantial programming in French. Yes. Uh, and then we have a large component of, of indigenous uh, education. So there's a large indigenous community research uh, program at the university. Though the, the francophone components, the, the indigenous knowledge components, those took a pretty big hit. Um, mm. A lot of the anglophone components did, did too. Um, but one of the challenges for those of us who still have our jobs uh, is going to be moving forward. How do we hang on to the things that defined Laurentian and made us particularly proud to be faculty at that university? And, and Sterling, that's going to be the challenge. Indeed. And Thomas, uh, just a final thought here as, as li- uh, people listening to us here on the West Coast are uh, thinking of uh, Trinity Western, Simon Fraser, UBC, Kwantlen Polytechnic. We have a variety of, of very good uh, post-secondary schools and universities in our uh, area of the country. What lessons can staff and faculty at BC and other Canadian post-secondary schools learn from the Laurentian experience, do you think, Thomas? Yeah, there there are a couple of things that I think we have to take out of this. One, I think universities have to do a better job of talking to the community about the university's role in the community. And we need broader support for education. Um, As a society, we've decided that education is is important, and it's something that we support at the federal level, at the provincial level. The issue at Laurentian is that Laurentian has been forced into a series of decisions that that were unfortunately risky, to try to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And we were not getting sufficient funding from the province and from the federal government to not have to make these risky decisions. And that's put us in a position now where, fi- where we're financially solvent. Um, and, you know, it, sort of it's analogous to, to a library. You don't say to a library, I want you to go out and play the stock market to put books on the shelves. Yeah. You say to the library, how do we reasonably support a library to support the literacy of our community? And what we need is is better activity at the federal and the provincial level to financially support all universities so that we can supply a reasonable education to our community. So what do we learn going forward? We need to be working better with the provinces, with the federal government, see what the expenses really legitimately are, and finding ways to support that that don't involve the requirement of risky decisions that put a university in, in a situation of financial insolvency. Interesting stuff. And a terrible way to learn the lesson, Thomas. Um, I, you know, I, I have some experience. I've been in my business for quite some time, and uh, we call it restructuring when it happens yeah. in my business. And I've been through several purges that would uh, that would have been quite stunning, and it's never, ever a, a, a warm, fuzzy occasion. I have tremendous sympathy for your colleagues. I'm delighted to hear that you survived this purge, and I'm very much looking forward to having more conversations about coffee and other matters uh, down the road. Thanks very much for this this morning, Thomas. Great to have you back on the show, sir. Thanks for the opportunity to chat, Sterling. Always great to have a chat with you.
Professor Thomas Merritt from the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Laurentian University in Sudbury. And our guest today joining us from York University's Department of Natural Science, where he is an assistant professor, is Jesse Rogerson, who wrote a piece recently at theconversation.com entitled, NASA's Ingenuity Helicopter Flight on Mars Opens Up New Frontiers in Space Exploration. Professor Rogerson, Jesse, good morning and welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. This is exciting stuff. And you make the point very early in the article you wrote. It's a good one, too, by the way, Jesse. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. You made, the point, you made the point that this was done, this whole helicopter business on Mars was done simply to prove that it can be done. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, if you're going to um, explore these really incredible frontiers like Mars um, in different ways, it starts with a small step. So, for example... Uh, back all the these we have all these incredible rovers now the Curiosity rover which landed on twenty in on Mars in 2012 mm-hmm. and we have the Perseverance rover which landed in just this a uh, couple of months ago in in February those rovers are some of the most complex rovers that were ever been built by humanity but it all started with the Pathfinder mission that sent this tiny little rover called the Sojourner rover as a technological demonstration to see if roving is even possible on the planet Mars. And they were successful, which led to some incredible advancements in rover technology and got us to here today. So the, the helicopter that, that hitched a ride along with Perseverance was sent just primarily to see if flight can be done on Mars. And they have proven it twice now. And uh, is it like, are, do you know, uh, is there a series of experiments planned in order to just see not only that it can be done, because now we have hard evidence clearly that it can be, Jesse, but is there now a series of, uh, well, let's just see exactly how far we can push this uh, plan? That's now. exactly right. Yes, um, that's, the, that's the, the plan. So the first flight was on, I believe it was Monday. And they all they did was they, they went up about three meters in, in the air. The helicopter hovered there for uh, about 30 seconds, and then it came back and touched down. That's and then right. on Thursday, they did a, uh, a similar thing where they, except what they did is they went up to five meters, and then they right. went sideways two meters. So they, went, they did a lateral flight. They did a little bit of distance. And then they came back and landed. And then you know what? What's really cool is literally today, in fact, probably in like the next 10 or 15 minutes, we're going to hear back from Mars because they're doing an even longer flight where they're planning to uh, increase the speed a little bit and to go um, tens of meters down, mm. down range and then come back. So, and if that one goes well, they probably have a few more uh, flights planned um, for the little helicopter. Well, and it's funny because I remember seeing the first pictures, and and we and it was a big deal. Uh, there was this tiny little drone, basically went up in the air, hovered for a few seconds, and went back down. And I remember yeah. looking at it, going, "Well, I I guess that was okay. Uh, it didn't last very long." And then I'm th- and then all of a sudden it occurs to me, "Wait a second, that just happened on Mars. <laughs> it's not something that we're doing out in the desert in Arizona, Jesse. This is a really big deal." And, and it, the fact that it's incredibly far away, there's so, many, there's so many pieces to this. So Mars right now is hundreds of millions of kilometers away, which means it can't be piloted. The, the helicopter can't be piloted live. There's a delay mm-hmm. in communications. So this helicopter is doing it all on its own. Like it, it spins up its rotors, and then as soon as it lifts off the ground, it needs to react to the changing wind pattern. Like if there's a gust of wind, it needs to be able to decide how to react to that gust of wind. 
Sure. On on top of that, uh, also remember, it's very different than like going out to the desert of Arizona because the atmospheric pressure is incredibly different. Mars has has 1% the atmosphere that we do. And that means that the amount of lift you generate by spinning your rotors is so much less. It's, it's harder. Another way of saying it, it's harder to get lift because there's less air to push against. That's uh-huh. how we generate lift. So it's, it, we, we had no idea if we'd be, would be able to do it. I mean, we were, you can simulate it on earth, but you can only simulate it so well. And, uh, it's a, it's a difficult thing to be done. And, but when you, when you get there and you try it out and you see these incredible videos of it going up and coming down and going sideways and spinning around, you're like, well, I guess it's possible. No kidding. And I guess, and the other part that is, and again, you're, you're, this is such a timely conversation, Professor Rogerson. We're so happy to have you with us today. Uh, because again, you get the impression that there's somebody at some Pasadena laboratory or some NASA <laughs> facility sitting there with a joystick on a desk <laughs> going, okay, let's see if we can get her up three meters today. And of course, as you just pointed out, that is simply not possible. That's right. This is like, you got to think that this has um, autonomous technology on board, right? It, it is programmed to be able to make decisions. And so uh, it needs to know where it's landing. It needs to know what the wind patterns are, what the temperature is. It needs to be able to, to decide that the flight is going to go well to even take off the ground. Yeah. And like the, we have a lot of technology like this that's coming in um, where we have autonomous technology, say in, in like driverless cars or things like mm-hmm. that, that can yep. make decisions actively. And this is uh, an example of that, although it's in planetary exploration, except uh, rather than on the ground here on Earth. But it's interesting that those two, you can connect those dots. And if you can't do it this week, you may be able to do it next year kind of thing. All of these all of these uh, advances, wherever they may occur, uh, they will be connectable dots down the road. And final question to you this morning, Jesse, please. You talk about this uh, little helicopter, this little drone up there on Mars that has so captivated our attention as being the, the key to open up new frontiers in space exploration. So what's next? Where would we go next? So that's an interesting question. Why, why try this, right? What is this going to do for us? Well, the, on Mars, for example, um, so Mars we studied with orbiters um, that orbit around Mars or landers or rovers. And one possibility that we can do with these helicopters is that we can access terrain that's not really easily accessible. So, for instance, say the side of a, uh, of a cliff that a, a rover wouldn't be able to get to or right. that uh, an orbiter wouldn't be able to get a good angle on. Um, or, for example, just a really steep hill or, or perhaps a field of boulders that a rover can't drive through because it's mm-hmm. just too, too impossible. So inaccessible terrain is something that a helicopter could be really useful for. But what's more interesting is, is if you look around the solar system at the, the places that have thicker atmospheres. So, for example, uh, Venus has a thick atmosphere okay. and there's a moon around Saturn that's called Titan. Yes. And Titan has this. Um, incredibly thick atmosphere. It's actually got a thicker atmosphere than we do on Earth. And there's already a mission planned to go to Titan that's going to make use of this technology. It's, it's called Dragonfly, and it's going to fly around Titan. It's, it's launching in five or six years from now. And it's, it will be a helicopter, a, a big helicopter that's going to carry a bunch of scientific instruments, and it's going to fly from place to place on Saturn's moon Titan, learning about that place. And it will, they can learn from the technology that's being demonstrated right now. And that will help us go to places like Venus or other places where we want to fly around atmospheres.
Fascinating stuff. And as as we continue to learn more and more from the current Mars uh, trip and experimental process, Jesse, uh, can we call upon you again to, to keep us up to speed with what's being discovered? And and because it's all happening at a, at a pretty rapid rate. <laughs> hey, I'd be happy to. Anytime you want to chat space, I'll be there. Excellent. Well, thanks for this this morning. Great to have you on the show. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. There's Professor Jesse Rogerson from the Department of Natural History at York University in Toronto. Joined on the line from Gibsons by Councillor David Kroll, here to talk to us about the impact of the most recent set of restrictions imposed by the British Columbia government on Friday. Councillor Kroll, David, good morning. Thanks for joining us, sir. Good morning, Sterling. So the, we uh, here in the, in the big city, David, are uh, keenly aware of the limitations that have been imposed by the provincial government. Uh, we uh, are also trying to wrap our head around the various uh, combinations that have created. For example, uh, this morning, is Gibson's in the same region as Vancouver? No, no, we're part of the same region. We're part of coastal health. So, you know, people have been advised to not travel between health regions. Yes. Uh, there was fairly clear direction from the provincial government that um, you were ill-advised to try and travel to Vancouver Island or the Gulf Islands. Right. But as the Sunshine Coast is within the um, coastal health region, there wasn't a restriction put on travel to the Sunshine Coast. What did exist was a lot of confusion. Yes. Um, on Friday, I was getting text messages and emails for people who had gone to Vancouver for medical reasons and were returning and were panic-stricken to see, you know, cars with trailers, um, you know, boats and trailers on behind heading for the coast. And they thought, you know, the immediate reaction is, what's going on? We were told not to travel, and here are all these people traveling. Sure. Um, technically, they were within their right because they were traveling within coastal health. Um, on the flip side of it, the and you may be aware of this, Sterling, you've been at this business for quite a while and reported on I don't know how many provincial elections, but the Sunshine Coast is one of the um, ridings within the province which has the most elderly demographic. Ah. So, okay. You know, you have a lot of people who are feeling particularly vulnerable. And this has been a problem from the onset of the pandemic is, you know, people here. Um, and we have a, a fairly large indigenous population as well. The, mm -hmm. with the, so, you know, we have both Squamish Nation and Seashelt Nation pro uh, lands on the coast. Yes. Aside from the fact the whole coast was theirs before us. Um, and we brought them wonderful things like pandemics. But, um, you know, it's it's difficult. You have an incredibly vulnerable population. And, um, you know, that's, you know, as I said, on Friday, I was getting text messages. Um, Mayor Beamish was getting emails. Um, I was getting emails. You know, what's going on? Why are you letting these people come here? And it's difficult because the BC ferry staff have no power of enforcement. Right. Right. And it puts them in an incredibly awkward position. And people get frustrated, frustrated with them. Um, you know, so it's a tough one. It really is. 
Um, yeah, David, I'm I'm looking at BC ferries right now. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm looking at a list of ferry travel restrictions, and all of the routes from, uh, say, Tawasan to Swartz Bay or Horseshoe Bay to Departure Bay, the Van- the the mainland to Vancouver Island routes that uh, that is crossing from one region to another, and that is yep. a a form of travel that Dr. Henry uh, very much insists we uh, not. Uh, take unless it is absolutely essential. However, on this ferry list, David, it, there is no indication of uh, of any blockage or any mention even of the ferry from Horseshoe Bay up to the Sunshine Coast. So, exactly. so that would mean that for for those people who on Friday were calling you and the mayor and other members of council, going, "What on earth is going on?" It was more confusion than actual restriction in the in in terms of their being able to jump on a ferry and come back home. You know, it's what I was saying about the confusion because the overall message was, "Don't travel unless it's an absolute emergency." Right. You know, don't travel between health regions. But what people fail to, you know, do the deep dive, go to the BC Ferry site and realize that, oh, wait a minute, Sunshine Coast is part of the Vancouver Coastal Health Region. That's right. So perfectly within their rights to travel here. As a courtesy to, you know, vulnerable people, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been a great idea to travel here. But, you know, the other big problem, Sterling, is the frustration level of everyone, I think. You know, you look at countries like New Zealand and Australia, now that they have the distinct advantage of having a big moat around them. That's for sure, yes. But, um, you know, I had a friend in New Zealand, he and his girlfriend were traveling when the pandemic hit. And, you know, overnight, it literally turned into a police state and you didn't move. You were allowed, I think it was once every 10 days, to be able to go shopping yeah. or go to the pharmacy. Um, you know, they didn't give, they didn't care about protecting businesses and the dollar. It was people's health first and shut everything down. And look at the numbers, 29 deaths. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I appreciate what the government has tried to do. Um, you know, it, it and I, I, I pity Dr. Henry, like she's, you know, she's no matter what she says, she's being criticized um, because yeah. people are just frustrated at this point. Um, well, there's a lot of that, David. There's a lot of frustration going on, and plus, the there there is a barrage of messaging. Not all of it coordinated from a single point, and therefore, people are confused. Perhaps with the latest set of restrictions, even more so than before. A quick question to you regarding uh, those uh, vulnerable people on the Sunshine Coast you just referenced, David. If someone becomes ill, what sort of hospital facilities uh, are there available in the Gibsons area? We have one hospital for the entire coast. Um, and that hospital has, I believe, five ventilators. Yeah. So, you know, in the early days, um, you know, if cases did come up on the coast, um, what they did is um, Lionsgate Hospital was set up as the COVID intensive care hospital. That's right, yeah. So they would transfer, um, you know, they would transfer someone that, that was COVID positive or that needed hospital treatment to Lionsgate. 
down to Lionsgate. So, David, I'm, I'm out of time, but I, I need a final thought from you on this. Uh, okay. Would you prefer that people listening in the Lower Mainland this morning, even though it's in our technically within our region, is it still time to just stay home as much as possible? Well, we're, no, we're never going to nail this um, virus down. Keep traveling and allowing it to spread. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, it's that simple. And you know, look at Whistler of their thousand most of them with the new variant. So All right, David, I have to leave it there, David. Thank you very much. David Kroll, a counselor with the town of Gibson's. Jack Mintz is joining us now from the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, where he is the president's fellow. Mr. Mintz is also a well-known economist and a consultant. And Jack wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago entitled, If I Were Finance Minister, his thoughts on how he would treat the budget. And then, of course, we saw the budget. And subsequent to that, uh, Jack has written a piece entitled, oh, Well, There Are No More Fiscal Anchors Holding Back the Liberals After This Budget. So lots to talk about this morning. Dr. Jack. Jack Mintz, first and foremost, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Thank you very much. It's great to have you with us, Jack. For the benefit of those who are still unfamiliar with the term, and it gets bandied about quite regularly, but it's still uh, ambiguous to some, you say there are no more fiscal anchors holding back the Liberals. First and foremost, Dr. Mintz, what is a fiscal anchor? Well, actually, that's a good question because it almost sounds like uh, something you throw over the side of a boat. Exactly. Uh, what uh, fiscal anchor means in um, parlance of uh, people who work on these sort of things and, and in government is that there's some sort of a fiscal objective uh, to ensure fiscal uh, prudence. And so, for example, uh, a common one is just simply saying you're going to balance it the the books by you know a certain year and so sure. uh, going to a zero deficit is a is a fiscal anchor in in itself and that's what Paul Martin used for example in the in the 1995 budget uh, he said they you know they were going to balance the books by you know in in so many years but you know I think it was three or four years at that time uh, but uh, he said that's her that's her anchor and then of course what happens is it gives um, the finance minister a lot of power to control the budget because yes. anyone who comes along and says, I want to spend this and that, uh, he'll say, well, we've got to find room for that. And where are you going to find the room? And so it's uh, it, get, it allows the finance minister to say no more often. And that's mm-hmm. really important about a fiscal anchor. Well, it sounds, though, like based on the amount of, of money we're talking about here, uh, that there there is no desire on the part of this finance minister to say no to pretty much anything. You talked in your, in your piece, if I were finance minister, you talked about, you would ask yourself, would you, would you come up with a budget that, similar to the one Mark Lalonde did back in the early 80s, or perhaps you would approach the budget as Paul Martin did 10 years later in the mid-90s? Uh, and then, or would you chart your own course of those possibilities and options that you presented, Jack, what would you like the current liberal government to have become like in their budgeting? Would you like to have seen a Mark Lalonde budget or a Paul Martin budget? Well, I think I I would have liked uh, a combination of the two, basically take the best parts of the two. I mean, the Mark Lalonde budget had no focus on on trying to uh, drive the deficit down to, uh, down to zero or, or to try to, you know, uh, which was at that time, there were very large deficits, uh, 
uh, you know, by, by the by the federal government. And Lalonde specifically said he didn't want to cut spending. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't think he, uh, I don't think that part I would like. But what he did say in his um, in the budget of uh, 1983, when when the deficit, you know, when the when there were just it was just the just getting out of recovery at the uh, out of a very serious recession at that time. What he did say is that private investment was very weak, and we need to do something about that. And that's the part that I liked, and I would have had in this budget if uh, if we had more focus on private investment, because Canada does have a very weak private investment uh, record right now. And then uh, the part I liked about Paul Martin was that he did have a fiscal anchor, mm-hmm. and he you know and he did say we're going to aim to what he had to do deal with a very uh, very difficult budget. Uh, deficit, but he didn't do it very well. It was in 1994 the budget that I was talking about. Right. His really good one was 1995 that you know that uh, really uh, constrained spending. But even in 1994, he said we have to worry about the deficit. We've got to start putting in some controls, which he did. And and so I would have I would have expected, uh, or I would have if I were doing this budget, I would have said, okay, we're going to have to spend some more money still to because of the pandemic. But we are going to be putting in a fiscal anchor uh, that, um, you know, in fact, I would have probably gone towards either a balanced budget or a target debt GDP ratio, like trying to bring down debt to uh, federal debt from 50% down to uh, 35% uh, over the next several years. Something uh, really solid uh, that would then say, then allow the Minister of Finance to say, look, uh, we're going to do a temporary spending right now, but any new projects and any new spending you want to do, we've got to find it within the fiscal framework. Yeah, and fiscal anchor there, the, meaning, uh, among other things, a, a strategy, an actual plan long-term for uh, massaging the economy back to something resembling normal. Uh, and uh, what, I would like to just pick up on your point, Jack, about investment, because if Mark Lalonde was able to recognize uh, that we were a little weak on the investment side of life uh, in the early 80s, uh, we're, we're, uh, it is said that right now in in the early 2020s, uh, we are one of the least attractive investment climates in the world. And a lot of that has to do with hyper-regulation from uh, an activist government. Um, well, yes. Well, actually, uh, the investment record has been very poor since 2015. Uh, in fact, uh, in, in a piece I showed uh, in, uh, in the post, we, we actually calculated uh, what, how much investment grew um, Capital formation, both public and private investment, grew from 2015 to 2019, and Canada was one of four OECD and what are called BRIC countries: BRIC is Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Right. Um, uh, so that's about 38 countries. Uh, you know, we were only we were among four countries that actually had a decline in private investment. Never mind relative to GDP or per worker hour or whatever, we actually have an actual decline in private investment. Uh, and uh, Brazil is the worst, by the way, and Mexico and Australia also did not well. Uh, so, mm. um, And yet, uh, U.S. went up 18% over that period, and Ireland just popped up over more, uh, <laughs> doubling its uh, its uh, investment over that period. So, uh, obviously, we we have a serious issue around private investment. I think regulation is a significant part of it. Uh, But I think also we need to uh, 
probably do some other things to basically show the government is open for business. And that's the problem. They're, they're, their budget has been focused on growing the economy through government spending. And uh, we know that has not been uh, a very successful strategy in, in the long term. Well, and yet they remain absolutely convinced that uh, government spending will be the driver of the recovery. And I think in terms of, uh, again, going back to the the fiscal anchor or a a long-term plan or action strategy, uh, I think a lot of Canadians are kind of reeling after this budget. A lot of numbers, 700 plus pages, but not really any kind of defined recovery plan. Here's how we're going to get, once we get this pandemic business and we get hurt, herd immunity achieved through vaccination, et cetera. Here's, here's the plan to get Canada's economy back on the rails and rolling again. And there just isn't much evidence that they've been thinking about a plan beyond government spending. Well, I think they would argue that they're resetting Canada. That's the Well, plan. that's their word, isn't uh, it? You know, so we're going to deal with long-term care and have a long-term care uh, program. We're going to have child care. We're going to have maybe guaranteed annual income so people don't have to work. <laughs> and and so so there's a whole bunch of uh, ideas that are all floating, all in terms of major government intervention in the economy. And and we have to remember, government spending now is over 42% of GDP. That's right. all levels of government. And, uh, you know, we have, I think we seriously have to ask as a country, uh, you know, how, how are we going to be moving towards Scandinavian levels, uh, and uh, which is, you know, more like 50% of GDP, but, but that's the sort of thing we're going to be looking at if if, uh, if governments think uh, this is the best approach that we should be using. Well, and of course, the other part of the plan that's a little daunting for a lot of us, you know, civilian taxpayers, Jack, is how are we going to pay for all of this? I mean, the government is limiting by limiting the uh, the economy without uh, without an actual plan. Therefore, they're already limiting government revenue simply because they're not thinking in those terms. So how on earth is all of this going to get paid for? I know we're doing uh, the, the Bank of Canada is doing its bond buying and all of this quantitative easing is going on temporarily as our historic low interest rates also temporary ultimately the piper is going to be need to be paid here jack when is all of this going to come down well you know there's this belief and uh, and i have to admit there's a number of economists that contribute to this belief that while interest rates are low we'll get more growth in the economy than uh, you know rising public debt charges so eventually over time the debt gdp ratio will decline yeah, uh, and so we can we can afford this debt, uh, and uh, it won't also be inflationary. Uh, these large deficits uh, that are being funded by printing money uh, through the Bank of Canada won't create an inflationary environment. Uh, so interest rates will stay low, and public debt charges here at GDP won't be very much. Although they still are rising to forty at the federal level to forty billion dollars in the next five years. Uh, uh, which we'll be paying our taxes for. So there's kind of this belief that, no, we're not going to have to put, raise taxes, and so let's just enjoy the party as, the, as it comes. And I think this is a very naive belief. This is exactly what's happening in the private sector right now with this low-interest environment that people feel that they can borrow a lot of money to buy housing. Mm-hmm. They're pushing up the price of housing and everything else. We have, a, we have politicians that are doing effectively the same thing uh, in, in terms of their uh, thinking, and it's uh, and at some point, the chickens will come home to roost. I believe that we will see higher inflation, higher interest rates. The Bank of Canada may come in with tougher policies. In fact, already Tiff Macklem, 
the, the governor of the Bank of Canada has said this week that uh, they think that they may have to raise interest rates sooner than they expected. Yeah, saw uh, that. Yeah, of how well the economy is doing, mm-hmm. and and that's really in reaction to a worry about inflation taking off. And so, if that happens, that's going to slow down the economy. And the reason all that's happening is that the pandemic was what I would call a supply shock. We people stopped working, and we've already had poor investment. So there was less being done, and we have less productive capacity. And unless we grow that productive capacity in the private sector, we're going to have a major problem because you can't just fan demand with a lot of government spending and then think that the economy is going to grow that way. In fact, that could just lead to high inflation with not a lot of growth. Our guest joining us from Calgary and the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, economist Dr. Jack Mintz, who has responded to the current budget uh, delivered by Christian Freeland the other day uh, with an article in the Financial Post entitled, There Are No More Fiscal Anchors Holding Back the Liberals After This Budget. And Jack, I wanted to just just quote uh, one line from your uh, piece For your comment, Canadians should take note they'll be paying $40 billion in taxes just to cover interest expenses by 2025-26. That concern is ameliorated if the government prints money to fund the deficit, including interest charges. In the belief that the printed money won't cause inflation to increase, we can happily spend money without raising taxes. Just the sort of happy thinking behind the new age modern monetary theory. Uh, A a, a tongue-in-cheek paragraph, if ever there was one, but what exactly is uh, modern monetary theory? Well, uh, modern (laughs) uh, monetary theory is um, uh, really not that new, really. It's it's really based uh, on the concept that... uh, uh, in the following sense that uh, the government can get the Bank of Canada to buy its bonds. Um, and in the past, monetary theory would say, well, then that would go into chartered bank uh, lending facilities and that would be lent out to private sector that then would put deposits back in the banks and then you end up creating more money that way. And, and that could be inflationary as you get more people uh, demands, to, you know, chasing goods. And and uh, and that's the sort of thing that kind of led to hyperinflation after the First World War and, uh, in Germany. And uh, I I saw hyperinflation when I worked in in Bulgaria um, in 1998. You, you know there are episodes of uh, very severe inflation uh, due to very large deficits. But monetary monetary theory says no no that's inflation isn't going to happen. Uh, look at how low interest you know uh, interest rates and inflation have been in Japan since 1980 you know, 1990, and they've had, you know, very high debt GDP ratios. Uh, same thing has happened since the 19, 2008 after the financial crisis. And so there won't be inflation. Uh, that's because the money market multiplier doesn't work very well. And so, um, you know, you won't get this problem of, you know, too much money chasing too few goods and you won't yeah. get inflation. And, and so that's what it's based on. Uh, most economists don't believe that's going to be the case. In fact, uh, if you, I think it's a very bad comparison to make between the pandemic of 2020 and and 2009. They were very different, uh, you know, which I could explain more, but they're very different circumstances. Uh, And in fact, uh, I think we we will see inflation uh, as as the government pumps up uh, the economy with its spending.
Interesting. So, Jack, uh, by way of paying for all of this, because there was no real uh, attempt in the budget uh, in 700 plus pages to go to any detail at all about how they plan on paying for all of this. Uh, there, of course, is there's popular tax the rich uh, thing, this theme running out of the NDP. That, But it, it's Canada, Jack. We just don't have that many rich people. Even if you, you went after them with a knife and fork, you're still not going to get enough money to make a difference. So where's the rest of the money going? to come from <laughs> well that's true i mean there's first of all there's not enough money to tax the rich and even when we do they can under our residence-based taxation system uh, for income tax if people move out of the country then they don't have to pay canadian tax at all yes. and that happened in 2015-16 when we jumped up the mar- federal marginal tax rate alberta raised its uh, rate by another five points so like in alberta there was a nine point increase but i can tell you there were a number of people uh, that I know of that actually moved out of the country uh, entirely. So we're not taxing them at all. And in fact, yeah. uh, the revenue that we got out of uh, raising those marginal tax rates really was was minuscule. And so, uh, you know, we think we can tax the rich and we can, you know, like the NDP saying, we're no more billionaires, we'll just tax sending all the money away over a billion dollars. Um, people aren't going to stay here. And it's not like the United States, which has citizenship taxation. You move out of the country, you're still subject to U.S. tax unless you give right. up U.S. citizenship. So it's, um, you know, people can very easily decide, I'm going to move out of the country. So, and there isn't that much wealth to get. In fact, already the top 10% of individual taxpayers in Canada pay 60% of income taxes. And, you know, how far down the road can you keep taxing that group of people? And so... In the end, uh, you're going to have to have general tax increases, like a GST hike, and and that everyone pays, elderly, poor, mm-hmm. everybody will end up paying more tax. Interesting. Jack, I've got one minute, and it's it's very unfair of me, but we haven't heard a lot. In fact, I haven't heard anything about the petro sector in the budget. It seems to be the agenda of the current government to essentially destroy the uh, economy of Alberta is, uh, well, reinforced by this budget. Am I getting something wrong? Uh, in part. Um, the one positive item, but it wasn't complete, uh, was... Um, a commitment to fund carbon capture, storage, and utilization, uh, or utilization and storage, and and that was uh, in the budget, but there was no tax credit rate announced, so it wasn't a full proposal. Right, uh, and also uh, they said it, the money, you know, uh, CCUS cannot be used for uh, what's called enhanced oil recovery, uh, which is actually one of the ways that really helps pay something that's very expensive to do. And mm-hmm. so it was a big disappointment to to Alberta, uh, and effectively there was nothing else in the budget that was positive for Alberta. Interesting stuff, Doctor Jack Mintz. Always a pleasure, sir. We do appreciate a little bit of your time on a Sunday. It's a terribly important budget. It's a big moment for Canada. The word reset scares the bejeepers out of millions of us, and yet I fear there's one coming. Uh, we'll we'll talk again. There's just no question about that. Thanks again for joining us today, Jack. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Jack Mintz from the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, where he is the president's fellow and a well-known Canadian economist. Uh, That's it for this half hour. We're going to take a quick break for the news to the top of the hour. And when we come back, Maureen McGrath will join us with a look ahead at tonight's Sunday Night Health Show.
up in the valley uh, of concerned citizens is trying to save a century-old building in Hope, which is in danger of losing its heritage status and being demolished. The Hope Canadian National Railway Station, known locally as the Hope Station House, was built in 1916 and served a key role in the development of the Fraser Valley. And in 1942, it served a much darker role as the main station for transporting Japanese Canadians to internal camps. Christian Ward, who is rallying to save the building, says it's the last station of its kind in Canada. The history is so important and demolishing this building, we are losing a tangible piece of history that relates to this time. To uh, tell more of the story about the Hope Station House, Christian Ward joins us from Hope. Christian, good morning and thanks for joining us today. Hi, good morning, Sterling. Thank you. Well, it's good to have you with us, sir. Rod, take us back a little bit to, to 1916, uh, when the Hope Station House was built and dedicated for Canadian National Railway. At that time, uh, what was the primary function of, of the railway through just transporting cargo uh, down to the ports in Vancouver? Yeah, I mean, it really played a key part in the community at the time. It was um, used for passenger as well as cargo. Um, there was no school in Hope at the time, for example, so children would travel by train uh, from Hope to Chilliwack. Really? It all, yeah, it also played a significant role in, de- in the development of farming in the Fraser Valley. And there was also what's known as the milk train, which ran from Hope all the way to Vancouver. Um, so it would, it would stop at all the, all the farms along the way, um, all the way to Portman and uh, delivering milk along the way, all, all the way to Vancouver. Um, so that, that's the kind of early history. Um, obviously, when it was built, there was you know huge impact on First Nations um, displacement of of their settlements, um, disruption of the spawning grounds in, in their fishing territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, First Nations worked on the railway, um, as did lots of other nationalities. Sure. So there's there's really a varied history um, to the building. Well, you know, I spent 31 years of my life living in White Rock, Christian, and down there on the beach is the old White Rock station house, the old yeah. train station. And that has become a focal point, a, a point of pride. There's a little art store there. It's a thousands, when we're allowed to, thousands of visitors visit that spot every summer on the promenade right by the pier. It's, yeah. it's a big deal for locals, and locals are quite proud of it. But there was a time when uh, it was in some degree of jeopardy, and and quite an effort had to be put out to save it. So uh, what sort of effort is going on in hope uh, in terms of citizen grassroots to try and save this uh, culturally and historically important building for the folks in hope? Well, it's really been a, a huge community effort. So I've been working as part of a group and there have been lots of other people working as well. We originally uh, uh, directed our efforts towards the council uh, but felt that we weren't being heard. Uh, we took our complaint to the ombudsperson, who since ruled in our favour and found that the district um, hadn't approached their decision fairly. They hadn't made any consideration of the heritage value of the building. Um, and we also applied to the minister in charge of heritage for BC. And right. just last week, she intervened and used her powers under the Heritage Conservation Act to issue a 120-day stop work order to the District of Hope. So 
there's really been you know a lot a lot of work by many people going on in the background and i think the really positive thing is that you know this isn't about fighting anymore you know the ombudsperson review and the ministerial stop work order has now given us some breathing space yeah this is this is a, a really valuable valuable opportunity to do something i think and, and- Christian, uh, let me just inter- interrupt because it's important to know to note as well that this uh, this building, this old uh, railway station house in Hope, has been designated uh, a heritage site. I was back in the early '80s by the district, um, and with the minister buying you a 120 day stop uh, work order, that's important because at the end of May uh, there was supposed to have been a decision, a final decision, one way or another taken, and if it hadn't been taken in favor of restoring or keeping this station house it was to go to demolition so the the extra time the minister just bought you allows you to do what with your save the station house rally because obviously it's not demolition is not anywhere near what you want to see happen does the building have to be moved from its present location christian and if so is that a ridiculously prohibitive expense no, not not at all. Uh, moving heritage buildings is is fairly common, especially railway stations. And ex, you know, railway station experts have confirmed that actually these buildings are fairly easy to move. We've even approached a specialist mover who has confirmed that this building can be moved. Okay. Um, so I think really, you know, we during this pand- pandemic, it's it's inspired us all to question what's important to us mm-hmm. we all say that heritage is important to us whether it's in you know in black and white in a in a in a district document it's such as an official community plan or whether it's just about people who we all love to say we visit how you know to visit heritage buildings but it takes commitment and action to save it you know what do we actually do about it we love these buildings but now it's time for actually to kind of walk the walk now we have to make our voices heard Sure, and I, th- I think during this pandemic, it's in- inspired lots of people to question what's important to us. And this is an opportunity to say who we are as a society. I think, and part of that is, it's an opportunity to acknowledge the good, the bad, and the ugly. And referring to the history here, it's you know, it's an opportunity to tell our stories together and to transform this building into something sustainable for the future, while still honouring all of the history uh, that's within Indeed. the building. So if the building does need to be moved, uh, and you and you now understand that it is certainly doable, and we, we see houses on the move, not all the time, Christian, but it's not entirely rare to see a huge truck moving a house or some large building. So it, it's yeah. doable. We know that. The all-important question is, do you have a plot of land to move the house to? I think this is really what the process that's ongoing at the moment is about. The minister who has issued the stop work work order um, is investigating um, all options with the stakeholders, including the District of Hope. Okay. Um, the options that were originally on the table were either to relocate the building, to transfer it to a third party, or to demolish it. Um, so as we know, the stop work order has been issued and we're looking at options that don't include demolition Sure. Um, so that's really going to be about looking at what land is around um, and and seeing whether there are viable places to put this building where it could 
serve as a valuable uh, part of the community for the future. Okay, I have to. I have to ask you a tough question now, Christian, because, of course, part of the history of this particular station house goes back to the 1940s when it was a a station for transporting Japanese Canadians to internment sites here in British Columbia. This is the era of cancel culture. This is the era of if it's not politically correct in 2021 uh, and it represents something in our past, we need to remove it. We need to pr- we need to pretend it never happened. Have you had in the course of your attempting to find a new home for the station house in Hope? Have you actually had a contact from people who go, you know, we'd be just best to let this thing be demolished and uh, have it over with? It's a dark part of our history we'd rather not remember at all. I think you know, as with, as with any debate such as this, there are always going to be a variety of different opinions. But I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, this is a piece of history. History, yeah. can, history can be in a history textbook. But when you actually have an authentic piece of history in front of you, nothing tells history like that. And you know, it's a very valuable opportunity to, to tell the history that is part of our society. Mm-hmm. And I think really... That's how, as a society, we learn from each other. We tell our stories together. And this building is quite unique in that respect in that it, it represents stories from so many different people. Sure. Whether they're good stories or bad stories, the stories still need to be told. And unless we tell them, as a society, I feel we're just not going to move on. Couldn't agree with you more. You've got a couple of thousand people already signed on to make sure that the uh, this heritage building and its uh, its stories uh, get retained and get maintained and get carried forward. Christian, are you optimistic that uh, some solution will be found that allows you to do just that, to keep the building and its history as a viable part of the community of hope? I am optimistic, yes. Yeah, I think we're we're in a different place now to where we were back when we started the petition in December of last year. Yeah. We've really done a lot of work to amplify our voice and to allow other voices to be heard as well. We've received support from so many individuals and organizations, whether that's the, the Nikkei National Museum for Japanese Canadian History or whether it's Heritage BC, um, we have such a wealth of support. So I think we're now in a good place uh, with, the, with the stop work order and that we've now got this opportunity to come together to transform the building into something remarkable. And I think the only, way, the only way to do that is to work together. There's so much potential in this building to preserve it as something of value for the community and be here as a whole for the future. Great stuff. Christian, we'll keep in touch with this as as we go forward. Uh, We're definitely now curious as to how this is going to turn out. Thumbs up. We wish you considerable success. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Could I just quickly give my web address, which is hopeforthestationhouse.ca. We've got uh, petition links on there. We've got letter templates, and we've got a Colour for Heritage campaign for children and seniors. Um, So we'd really love everybody during this rainy weekend, during the pandemic, to take that time to get involved, make their voices heard. We need to hear from everybody. And if you've got children or seniors who aren't able to write letters, we've got colouring templates on there. Great stuff. You know, I, I must leave it out. there, Christian. I'm fresh out of time. Let me remind our listeners, it's hopeforthestationhouse.ca. 
joined by lawyer Kyla Lee, who is a criminal defense attorney with the Acumen Law Group, here to talk about the new orders that have been implemented in British Columbia, effective Friday morning, and to be in place until after the long weekend, uh, May 25th. Kyla Lee joins us this morning. Kyla, good morning and welcome back. A pleasure to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us, Kyla. Uh, we, we hear about in these new orders, we hear about health regions, non-essential travel is uh, is a big part of it. It has been since the beginning of the pandemic, but uh, as uh, more and more restrictions uh, come about, uh, the emphasis seems to be increasing on non-essential travel. And then we start hearing about things like random uh, roadside or periodic roadside blocks mm-hmm. and uh, some kind of uh, attempt to enforce all of this. So it it is the law. The uh, Solicitor General of the province announced these restrictions a couple of days ago, and he said something to the effect that they are enforceable, but also quickly added with details to follow. So we don't know a lot yet, or perhaps as much as we should know, in terms of enforcement or enforceability of some of these laws. And I think that's where you come in on the on the grounds of constitutionality and stuff. What do you think about the effectiveness of these new regulations with respect to standing a court challenge? Well, I think that there, there certainly is going to be a court challenge. And the question will be whether these measures in, interfere with your constitutional rights in as minimal a way as possible in order to achieve the measures that they're supposed to achieve, which is, of course, to stop the spread of COVID-19. That's the analysis Mm -hmm. that the court's going to engage in. And so I really question whether or not the court is going to find that these measures are constitutionally valid. When we went essentially from zero to 100, we had just recommendations and guidelines and suggestions and stern warnings from the government, but we didn't try anything in between this and completely stopping travel between health authorities except for essential reasons, which are defined much more narrowly than essential uh, work or essential reasons in any of the other health orders so far. Mm-hmm. When when we saw the province of Ontario a couple of weeks ago attempt a similar measure in terms of implementing more restrictions on the population, one of the uh, one of the things Premier Ford talked about in those days was uh, was the enforcement aspect that you and I are talking about now here in BC. Mister Ford wanted the police departments of his province to enforce these uh, measures uh, by uh, having roadside checks and all the rest of it, and the pushback from all, not all, but a huge, significant majority of Ontario provincial and and, uh, municipal police forces was very strong. No, no, thank you. We're not interested in even attempting to enforce this. Here in BC, the only reaction I've heard so far, Kyla, for your comment, is something from the RCMP when asked about the uh, uh, enforceability and the implementation of these road checks. Uh, They talked about not really being keen to do them, and they referred to legal ambiguities, which I found kind of interesting coming from a police force. What did you think of that? Well, I agree with the RCMP, so you know that's a bad sign. (laughs) Um, The RCMP, I mean, they're talking about legal ambiguities insofar as what their powers are 
Mm -hmm. to stop somebody at the road check, to ask them questions about the purpose for their travel, to compel them to answer about the purpose for their travel, and then if they answer about the purpose for their travel, to stop them from moving any any further. None of these powers are actually set out in the emergency order that we have now. So how it's going to be enforced and how they're going to separate people who are traveling for recreational purposes versus those who are legitimately traveling, uh, we don't know. Um, and, and I think that's the ambiguity that has them concerned. We have to remember yeah. that roadblocks are actually unconstitutional. The only reason that they're justified in Canada is that they're, they're saved under Section 1 of the Charter, which allows the government to infringe the Charter if there's a justifiable reason. And I don't think that, you know, I, I don't think that the RCMP is comfortable enforcing these, these check stops when they know already that roadblock programs are close to the line as far as constitutionality mm-hmm. is concerned. Interesting. And of course, in Ontario, once the Ford government was confronted by this big, huge no from the majority of the province's police departments, they walked back some of the restrictions. Uh, Do you see that uh, happening in British Columbia or uh, is it a different model altogether? It is a different model here in BC. I mean, initially, John Horgan had suggested that we would have the random stops, but that's since been uh, clarified by Mike Farnworth to indicate that, no, they'll just be roadblocks and they'll be at specific locations. Um, What I'm hearing from police officers is they're concerned about how they're going to get the manpower to staff these roadblocks. I mean, as it stands right now, police forces have been decimated by the impact of the pandemic. They have officers who have to stay home because they're symptomatic. People are, you know, getting a regular cold, but you're symptomatic, so you can't work. Um, They've taken so many officers off the road as a result of the impact of the pandemic, that they're already stretched to the limit. Everybody's doing as much overtime as they can already handle to make up for the missing officers. How they're going to have the manpower to staff these roadblocks, I don't know. Interesting stuff. So, Kyla, uh, we, uh, we're talking about uh, the possibility of roadblocks, but we also had the Solicitor General, while announcing, with a very stern face, announcing all of this stuff the other day, uh, left uh, an, an enormous amount of the details absent. So what was the point of that uh, uh, exercise uh, if, if, if lacking the amount of detail it did, I suppose, was to indicate the severity of the government's attitude change but uh, would not would you not again as a lawyer expected the top lawyer in the province to come forward with a more complete legal package it would be helpful for the government to come out with a complete legal package to say here's the text of the order here are the enforcement powers here's what's going to happen if you show up at a roadblock and you say i'm traveling to go skiing um you know it would be nice for the public so that the public a knows what to expect so the police know what they're supposed to do and so that we don't have this sort of panic that we've had in the last couple of days in bc with people rushing to cancel travel reservations, yeah. with people calling me nonstop asking about, you know, can I travel for this purpose and what's going to happen to me? Um, you know, I've been, I've been fielding questions for days and days since this announcement came out, and I don't have a lot of answers for people. And what do they want to know most? When, when you, and, be, and you have a lot of clients and, and a lot of common denominators. What is the most frequently asked questions uh, of you, the lawyer, in the wake of these new restrictions? The most frequently asked question I've been getting has been whether or not something constitutes essential travel. I'm hearing from people who want to go hunting for cultural reasons or for sustenance. You're allowed to travel for food shopping, but 
hunting isn't explicitly indicated in the order. Um, People who do recreational activities for mental health um, that want to travel for a mental health reason, does that fall within the health exceptions? These are things that don't have enough clarity for people who need to make these decisions right now. Yeah. And the other thing uh, I think, Kyla, that uh, is kind of bugging people uh, on the notion of enforcement period is, uh, you know, we have this example of and one of many, but we have this example in Vancouver of a restaurant in Kitsilano defying these restriction orders in a very public way. And we see the police on the sidelines videotaping the event. No tickets issued, no fines, no enforcement. So that uh, we we find a little galling, to say the least, and yet there's a possibility we may, uh, in the course of doing whatever our activities are, be stopped in a roadblock by somebody enforcing something that they wouldn't down on, on Cornwall Street in Kitsilano. It's the inconsistencies, Kyla, that are starting to really bug people. It, it is, and, and people are angry because they see other people defying the rules and not getting consequences. And one of the, you know, if you look at the social science research into what gets people to comply with government orders and suggestions and what gets the buy-in from the public, it's that they see other people doing it, and yeah. they see that when other people aren't following those rules, that they are punished or they're called out in some way. You know, we saw this early in the pandemic when everybody was staying home and we were all, you know, on team, stay at home and stay safe. Um, When people were going out, when people were defying the rules, there was a lot of public backlash. We don't see the same amount of that now. And I think that people at this point are just tired of of committing to staying safe when everybody else who's not staying safe is getting to do what they want with no enforcement. Yeah, indeed. And I should point out that when we were all behaving ourselves admirably in the first few early months of the pandemic, when we went through that lockdown approximately a year ago, that was the time that our guest this morning, Kyla Lee, actually contracted COVID-19. Kyla is a veteran of the disease and still deals with lingering uh, after effects. And it's time for our Arts Corner here on the Sunday edition of the program. The Coastal Jazz and Blues Society has announced a massive lineup of streamed performances for the 35th edition of its TD Vancouver International Jazz Festival. After canceling the festival last year due to COVID-19, the Society put together an impressive array of online shows by musicians from across BC and from around the world. Here to tell us lots more is the Managing Director, Artistic Programming for the Vancouver Jazz Festival, Rainbow Robert joins us. Rainbow, good morning, and thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you, and I'm a big jazz fan, and I missed last year. Uh, uh, can you take us back to that and, and, and tell us the, the agonizing that you went through that caused you to pull the pin, and that way it gives us a sense of how happy you are to be back in business this year? Yes, absolutely. Well, we did have the program complete for the 2020 edition of the Vancouver International Jazz Festival. However, it became uh, quickly quite clear to us that uh, public safety had to be at the forefront of our minds. And after having produced successful events, um, convening massive crowds for large scale um, musical experiences across Vancouver, we decided to, you know, wait and uh, proceed when we could do it again in the manner in which the community has become accustomed to having it presented. So we wanted to put our best foot forward and wait until the moment was right. 
So now it is. Uh, now we've got, of course, now the uh, in the in the year that has ensued since you had the the difficult uh, choice of making that decision last year, Rainbow. Now we've become very accustomed since then to streaming activities. It's either that or nothing. And frankly, in the face of nothing, it looks pretty good. So Absolutely. tell us a little bit. T- tell us a little bit more. You've got four venues. Uh, tell us where they are and what they are, and then can you include the possibility and we're talking about well first of all when does the jazz festival run let's get to the nuts and bolts here well the jazz festival will take place june 25 through july 4 2021 um and we're going to have our uh full program online on the 26th and um it is uh, going to be different in nature but it's a really huge offering that uh, includes all kinds of music and we're really excited to uh, bring the music into people's homes during these challenging times to yeah. really uh, tap into that power that music has to uplift people uh, many of whom have been stuck at home and so this massive offering of music um, d- to be welcomed into people's homes is our new way of doing things for this year. And so the music will be streamed from four main performance venues around town, Rainbow. What are those venues? They're quite familiar to jazz fans already, but tell us what they are. Absolutely. So our ticketed series, of which there are four, would include Performance Works on Granville Island, Pyatt Hall, Ironworks, and Frankie's Jazz Club. And we've given people a really clear roadmap of what type of music to expect um, so that it's not too difficult to crack the code on which series might be uh, more interesting to people with certain tastes. So the performance work series would be the equivalent of our largest series. And this year it focuses on the outstanding local BC talent, which is considerable. Our headliner is Snotty Nose Res Kids. We've also got Kari Wendell McClellan, Blue Moon Marquee. Jill Barber, Dee Daniels, and so that is a really diverse series. Mm-hmm. When we move into Pyatt Hall, that's for fans of just beautiful, heavy, straight-ahead jazz, and uh, there's a full 10-day program taking place at Pyatt Hall. For the more challenging um, tastes, uh, people can ex- uh, expect to really be surprised and um, see something very different as part of the Ironworks series uh, that's uh, down in Railtown. And then finally, we have another brilliant straight-ahead jazz series at Frankie's Italian Jazz Bar, um, which uh, runs all year long. And um, we're really excited to bring performances there as well. So all of those will be uh, live-streamed. And in addition to those, we do also have a full free program uh, that takes place at Ocean Artworks, the Western Front, with workshops also available through Tom Lee Music. Interesting stuff. So uh, uh, the ticketed series, the uh, ones that people can can uh, get tickets for, uh, tickets go on sale this week. They go on sale on the 26th yes, in just a do. couple of days. So where do they go to, uh, to get uh, locked in and grab some tickets for some of these wonderful performances coming up in a few weeks? Well, certainly everybody can always look for everything that we're offering at coastaljazz.ca. Okay. Um, at Coastal Jazz on YouTube is where people will find those performances. And... Um, it's going to be quite an astounding offering. I think people are going to be surprised when they see the depth of the program. Yeah. And, um, I wanted, the- sorry, Rainbow, I wanted to ask you, I'm just holding out a little bit of hope because I, I have a lot of friends who are performers and all of them, every last one of them, just misses the audience like you wouldn't believe as if I need to tell you this. Uh, so 
I'm what I'm seeing in the back of my mind's eye here is one of these clubs, one of these four venues, and, and now we're talking late June and into July. Might there be a possibility that by then, uh, people, humans, might be allowed into these clubs? Is that is there uh, are there arrangements possible that should the uh, health order change that uh, patrons could show up? Well, one can only hope that that might be possible, and we are still holding out hope. So at this point, really, our focus is on the streaming offerings, because we're certain that we're going to be able to do that, and we've put together a massive program. But in the event that it is actually safe, we will have very modest crowds inside of some of these rooms. And, I mean, normally our capacities range from uh, 85 people to 2,700 people in our indoor venues. If, in fact, um, we are able to safely have audiences, that would be reduced to between 10 and 50 people in the venue. So it would look very different. But we are, of course, still holding out hope. Well, good for you. I appreciate that. I know the artists certainly are. You have a fantastic reputation. The TD Vancouver International Jazz Festival is indeed a very big deal, Rainbow Robert. Uh, Coastaljazz.ca, friends, for all the details and for tickets for those streaming concerts. Rainbow, we wish you considerable success with this this year's uh, event. And as we get a little closer to it, once you're up and running, maybe we'll do this again and remind people what's going on. Sounds fantastic. And be sure to check out our international programs as well, which I didn't touch upon in as great depth, but those are all available also out of Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, Amsterdam, and Paris. So there's another couple of layers for your enjoyment. Fabulous. Coastaljazz.ca. Check it out, friends. Rainbow, thanks for this. Have a great day. Thank you, Sterling. There's Rainbow Robert, the artistic director of the uh, Vancouver International Jazz Festival, coming soon to a screen near you. That's it for our program today. My thanks to Julie Wong and Andrew Ferreira. Thank you very much for joining us on this soggy Sunday morning. Uh, That's it for us. Mike Agarbo and the team all set to go with the App Show next. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Saturday. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.